Today's scripture reading is 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. You can read on the screen behind me or from your Bibles. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If if Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. If you have your Bible this morning, turn your Bible in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13, as was just read just a little while ago. And uh, uh, I do have somewhat of a disclaimer this morning. I know what you're going to be doing next Sunday as a church. Um, I preached two weeks ago for my son in Canada, and he gave me a text, an assignment to preach from. The last, oh, 10 or 15 verses of 1 Timothy. Uh, Two weeks from today, I'm preaching from Psalms 45 at our son's church, which is our church. Our son is our pastor at the trails, and Matthew gave me an assignment, Psalms 45, because they're going through Psalms. Uh, Andrew, nor the elders, nor did anyone give me an assigned text. So as I've been praying about this morning and what I believe God would have for us today, I know what is coming next week. Having been a pastor for 40 years in local churches across South Carolina to New Mexico to Kansas and Texas, um, this, this verse is dear to my heart because it's about divine selection. And so what I want us to understand today as we begin our text is that this text is not about Samuel, this text is not about David, this text is not really even about Israel, the text is about God. It is about the sovereignty of God and how God is the one who divinely selects those who are going to be leaders that he chooses for his time, for his people, and in his place. It is God who selects the leaders to lead his people. And it's always been that way from the very beginning to probably until Christ returns. It will be that way. God always selects his leaders. And so today is about God. And for that reason... It's important for us to understand that as we begin this text, that we understand that it is God and God alone who does what God is about to do in the life 
of Samuel, in the life of David, in the life of Jesse, who has eight sons, and in the life of Israel, and hopefully in the life of your church. God is sovereign, and he will have his way. So as we take a look at this passage this morning, I want you to understand there are seven aspects about the sovereignty of God that I want us to study about this morning as God selects those who are in leadership of his people. Number one, God and God alone stipulates when change is coming. God and God alone stipulates when change is coming. Notice verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? God is speaking to Samuel. This is nothing new to him. You remember the story of Samuel? He was placed by his mother before Samuel, and early on he heard the voice of the Lord, and it wasn't until three times until finally Samuel realized that it was God that was speaking, not him to, uh, uh, not the Eli to Samuel, and he told Samuel to listen to the Lord. And so since a young boy, God has been speaking to Samuel. And Samuel and the Lord have an intimate love relationship where God constantly, continually speaks into his life. Now at this particular time in Samuel's life, he is somewhat retired. He is no longer the high priest. He's no longer the one that the nation of Israel is looking to for spiritual leadership. He's somewhat retired into a city where he is basically investing his life in training up other would-be prophets and spokesmen of the Lord. So in his private life, in his semi-retirement life, God comes to him and interrupts his life and speaks to him specifically about something that he wants Samuel to do. Notice that he says, Samuel, stop grieving over Saul. There are many scholars who want to imagine what that might be, that he's grieving over. No one is really quite certain why he's grieving, but he is grieving over Saul. Saul has made some very poor choices since he was elected by the people and anointed by God to be the leader of God's people. If you remember anything about Saul's life, uh, the people cried out to God and said, we want a leader. And he said, Samuel went to the people and said, but you have a leader. You have a king. His name is God. His name is Jehovah. And they said, no, we want a leader like the other nations. They said, but you have Jehovah. You have God. He's your king. No, we want a king just like the other nations. And so God gives them a king and he appoints and anoints Saul to be that king. And Saul has made some very poor choices up to now. And in this point, in Saul's leadership, God is no longer pleased with how Saul is leading, and he rejects Saul as the king of Israel and is now determined that this is the moment, this is the time to begin the process for changing the leadership of Israel, his people, from Saul to David. It's going to be a transition that's going to take some while, but he is in the process of transitioning that leadership. And he tells Saul, I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Now notice after speaking this to Samuel, he then sends him to a specific place. He said, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. He's bringing Samuel out of retirement from his private life into the public life once again to fulfill that which God is sending him to do, and that is to take his horn, fill it with anointing oil, <clears throat> and then make his journey from Ramah down to Bethlehem to anoint the future king of Israel, someone that God has selected. And it's one of Jesse's sons who happens to live in Bethlehem. Now, keep that in the back of your mind because that's going to be important as we begin to 
sort of go through this text because it's important at some point in this discovery process where they're going to review seven of the sons and the one that God chooses is not going to be there and yet God has told him that it's one of Jesse's sons. So one of Jesse's sons is going to be the one God is going to select to be the next leader. And notice he says, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. God shares with Samuel the reason for his sending him to Bethlehem is because, notice, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Remember the king, Saul, was the people's king that God did appoint and anoint and put in place and in power and in leadership. But now he's going to select for himself. This one that he is going to select is going to be for himself. It's not going to be for the people. He is going to be his king, and he's going to serve him among the sons of Jesse. This is a moment in the history of Israel that is very strategic because God is stipulating now that change is coming. Even though sometimes I think you and I have a tendency to believe that we sit behind the steering wheel and we can manage and and control and dictate and determine outcomes, the reality is we do not and we cannot. For God, who sits and reigns and rules on his throne, as I mentioned a couple of Sundays ago, is not an absentee landlord. He is sitting and reigning and ruling on his throne, and it is he who dictates and determines the outcome of your life, your family's life, and our lives together. God is in control. He is the one that dictates and determines when change is needed and when it is necessary. And obviously, you're a church right now who's in transition in which God is transitioning the leadership from a past leader to a current or a future leader. You're in transition. And it is God, as we saw several Sundays ago out of John chapter 5, regardless of what we may think, Jesus reminded us that God is always at work. And so God has been at work in this process the whole time up to the moment in which next Sunday you're going to be voting on whether or not this person has, present, has been presented to you will become your next pastor. So God is the one who dictate, dictates and determines when change happens and what change is necessary in order for him to accomplish and fulfill his plan and his purpose. And so God's purpose is about to be fulfilled for God's people the nation of Israel. Notice, so God and God alone not only stipulates when change is going to happen, but God and God alone speaks with incredible clarity, meaning that when he speaks, there's no questioning, there's no debate, there's no misunderstanding as to not only did God speak, but what did he say. And so notice in verse 2, Samuel responds to God by saying, verse 2, how can I go to God? How can I go if Saul hears it he will kill me. Is that really reality? I mean, think about it. Is that, a, is that a perception, and is that perception a reality? The answer is simple, in my opinion. The answer is no. Why? Because when God sends, God protects. And if God is to send Samuel from Ramah to Jerusalem as he passes through the hometown of Saul. Saul obviously more than likely is going to see Samuel passing through his hometown and is going to wonder what Samuel is up to because Saul is aware that there's a problem between him and God. He knows he's lost God's favor because of some decisions that he's made. And so he's going to wonder, Samuel, what are you up to? And the reality is he may get mad because he's going to see Samuel carrying a a, a, a sacrifice, and he's going to wonder, is this a sin sacrifice? 
And is this something about me? And Saul is what I would consider right now a a rogue king, a rogue leader. Uh, He has developed what I want to call a king complex, meaning that he is a king who believes that he can do anything to anyone at any time without any repercussions to others, much less God. And that's a dangerous place for a leader to be. And so Samuel understands that. He knows that. He's questioning God. God, are you really sure that this is what may happen? Because if it does, then I'm, I'm going to be in danger. I could be killed. Did you know that our perspectives are not always reality? Just because you perceive something did not necessarily make it true. Did you know that? Let me invite you to do something for a minute. Let's loosen it up a little bit. Turn to the person next to you and say, your perceptions are not always reality. Come on, I dare you to do that. Your perceptions are not always reality. Right? Well, looking back in the eye, I said, well, neither are your perceptions always reality. Now, if you're saying it to your parent, you're probably going to be in trouble when you get home. <laughs> if you're saying it to your spouse, we have marriage counseling following service just right down here. Andrew's going to oblige anybody who needs, or maybe Tom will. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> and so Samuel perceives this, this thing that's not real. And God obliges him, notice, by his reassurance. And the Lord said, I like it when the Lord is kind and compassionate toward me. How about you? And even though God knows, Samuel, you're a prophet. How many times have I sent you and protected you and been with you, and now all of a sudden, even at this ripe old age, you're questioning your own safety if I send you. You know, it's interesting that I don't care how old you are. We still have lessons to learn. Can I get an amen from the older people in the room? Okay, if you're above 40 in this room, you're one of the older people, all right? That makes all of us old. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you, and I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. God gives him a plan. Here it is. Take the heifer with you. Go through the hometown of Saul. If he sees you, this is what you say. Now, there is a lot of conflict and a lot of controversy over this heifer and the sacrifice that he's going to offer, but I believe, and I studied this for a long time yesterday to make sure that what I say (coughs) is not just my opinion, but it has a little bit of historical background to it. I believe this is a peace offering or a fellowship offering. It's not a sin offering. And it's an offering in which you could offer your heifer to the Lord and then take some of the good pieces of the meat from the heifer and what I would call have great Texas barbecue from that heifer, okay? And so they were going to offer this sacrifice as a peace offering, as a fellowship offering to the Lord, not because of sin, but because of a relationship and fellowship and because of peace. And then they were going to have some good Texas barbecue following uh, the offering. And notice verse 3, and notice the promise, and I will show you what you shall do. It's a promise. God says, Samuel, go to Jerusalem, look up Jesse, and among his sons, I'm going to select for myself a king, and when you get there, I will show you what to do. I don't know about you, but I thought about that this morning and for a good part yesterday. God gave him one step at a time. He didn't give him two or three or four. 
He says, take this step of obedience, and when you get to this location, I will give you the next step. You know, God never promises more than one step. Because he wants us by faith to take that step, to step out in faith and believe and trust in God that when we take that first step of obedience, God is going to lead us and guide us in the next step. So that when we take that next step, he will lead us and guide us in the next step. And God is promising Samuel, and I think he helps us understand that that first step is a step of obedience. We don't have to worry about the outcome once we've taken the first step of obedience. Because God is in control and God is sovereign. I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to pastors over the years who believe in the sovereignty of God and somehow struggle with that sovereignty when it comes to a lack of understanding about what's going to come next. Because in our fear and apprehension, when we take a step of obedience, that step of obedience leads us to a place of uncertainty where we're not quite sure what the next step's going to bring and how that's going to turn out. So therefore, if we take this step of obedience, what next? And we worry and we fret and we lose sleep over what may happen if we take a step of obedience. I don't know where God's going to lead you next week, but if you take a step of obedience next week and you do what the Lord tells you to do, does God have your future in hand? Does he know where it's going to lead? Does he know where he's going to take you? Does he know what the outcome's going to be? Absolutely. So why are we worried about taking a step of obedience if we believe God is leading in this direction as to the direction that God's going to take us after this first step? God already knows where you're headed. He knows what the next step is. And I'm convinced that he promises us that when we, like Samuel, step into a place of obedience as we follow his direction, he will lead us and guide us into the next step that he wants us to take, and then the next step, and then the next step. And notice he said, I will show you what you shall do, but notice the next sentence of verse 3, and you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Once you take this step of obedience and you arrive, it is then that I will show you, it is then that I will declare to you who it is I want you to anoint for me. God's speaking very clearly to Samuel as to what this next step of obedience is. Can I ask you an honest question? Do you believe that God still speaks today? Seriously? Do you believe he speaks? Do you believe when he speaks he will be clear? Do you believe in that clarity there will be an understanding as to that you will know exactly where he is leading and exactly what he is asking and exactly what he wants you to do in response to him speaking into your life and into the life of his church. I don't think we need to worry about God speaking clearly. What we need to worry about sometimes, I don't know about you, but me, is my listening. Sometimes I'm not a good listener. I mean, take it from me, I'm a person that... Uh, has been a pastor for 40 years, a denominational leader now for about 50 or serving, and I, 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 I do a lot of talking. Anybody know anybody that does a lot of talking? You raise your hand. Come on. You know somebody that does a lot of talking? All right. You know somebody like that? Look at the people who don't have their hands raised. They are the people that are always talking. If you don't know somebody that's always talking, you're the talker. The reality is that even though sometimes there are a lot of talkers who are not listening, sometimes there are those of us who listen but are not listening. 
And as we approach next Sunday, it's important for you as a congregation, as a church family, to listen to the leadership of the Spirit of God speaking through the Word of God in regard to how God is leading you as a church in selecting and affirming what God is calling you to do. Because the only voice you should be listening to is His. Notice, thirdly, God and God alone safely guides those He leads. Notice in the text, verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. It's interesting. He was submissive to doing exactly what the Lord had commanded him to do. He came to Bethlehem. Notice what happens when he comes to Bethlehem. There's an investigation. The elders of the rich, uh, of the rich, the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? They're wondering why Samuel is coming. They're a little bit apprehensive because they see him coming with the heifer, and they're wondering, have we committed a sin? Is Samuel going to come and rebuke us? Is he going to call us to repentance? Have we lost favor with God because of something that we have done? And so they're they're wondering, why has Samuel come? Do you come peacefully? And notice, notice is why I think it's a peace offering. And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then he invites him to consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. There's no record regarding the invitation being accepted by these men who are not only receiving the invitation, but are curious as to why Samuel came. But he invites them anyway to come, investigate, see for yourself. I've come to offer a peace offering. I've not come to judge you or to uh, rebuke you. I have come and in peace. And then the scripture simply said in the last of verse 5, and he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. He consecrated Jesse and his sons. He aided in the process of this outward consecration in which they committed unto the Lord. It, yes, it is an outward consecration in which they bathe and they change them and put on some clean clothes and they clean themselves up exteriorly on the outside. But it's indicative of the heart that is reflective on the outside. The heart is being reflected by what they do on the outside. So these men, these seven sons and Jesse, are consecrating themselves. Samuel aids in that consecration, and they become consecrated unto the Lord. Notice how God safely led Samuel when he obeyed what God invited him and asked him, or if not commanded him to do. God safely leads us when we're obedient. There's no need to worry or to be concerned if we'll follow the instructions the way God tells us to do what he has called us to do. God will safely guide those who he leads every time. If God leads you next Sunday to call your next pastor, why worry? What do you have to be afraid of? What's the apprehension? Because notice, God and God alone safely guides those he leads. And if God is leading you, he will lead you safely to where he wants you to be. God and God alone sees beyond the superficial as well. Notice the text in verse 6. When they came, he looked on Iliad and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. I think it's interesting that the first son comes, and notice the response of Samuel. That's an interesting word, thought. 
I don't know about you, but to me, that infers to me that Samuel assessed this man that was standing before him. His father, notice, brought him. He stood before Samuel, and he thought. That means he, he, he assessed, he analyzed, and then he thought in his mind. He thought. Notice, he thought. Not God, but he thought. Notice the word, surely. He was sure this was the guy. Surely the Lord, notice his expectation, the Lord's anointed is before him. He thought, surely this is the guy. Of the seven guys that are here, that's him, without question. Notice verse 7, that word B-U-T. I know about you when God always says, hey, Boswell, hey, I know you thought this, but you're off track. Notice the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his statue, because I have rejected him. The Lord rejected him. Why? Because Samuel was assessing on superficial things. Because I have rejected him. On the surface, he looked like the brightest, the best, the most educated, the most everything. I mean, he looked like Tom and I were talking about earlier, he fits the profile. I mean, he, he's the guy because, you know, our community looks like him, so he must be the dude. Must be him. The Lord said, no, 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 I've rejected him. You're assessing superficially. Spiritual assessments never take us where God wants to lead us. I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. I look in the mirror and I don't see much. Can I get him into that? We don't see much either, Charles. <laughs> you know, our assessment of ourselves is not God's assessment of us. I don't know how you feel about yourself or how you assess yourself, but you have incredible value and you have incredible potential and capacity when the Lord picks you up and places you where he wants you to be and he'll use you for his glory. I don't know about you, but that's good news to me because it's not based upon what I bring to the table. It's not based upon my education. It's not based upon my experience. It's not based upon anything other than God's assessment of me and of you. Notice, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. God has a supernatural assessment, a supernatural ability to see past the physical, past the obvious, past what others and we might see of ourselves. And he sees incredible capacity and potential. Why? Because the Lord looks where? Where does he look, church? One more time. Where does he look, church? Work with me. Where does he look? You believe that? You didn't say it like you believe it. He looks on the heart. He looks on the, 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 the conscience, the mind, the desires, and the will of the man, the inner part that is often not visible to human assessment. He looks at the heart. And I don't know about you, but aren't you glad that's where he looks and that's where he 
zeroes in on, when he assesses us and wants to use us in a way that would bring glory to him, that's reflective of a heart and a life that's obedient to his call. And so we see that God sees beyond the superficial. You know, it's easy for us when we look at a prospective candidate to be our pastor. I've been on this end uh, 40 years. I was in the local church. I have stood before congregations before uh, and had to preach a sermon. And uh, many times, based upon one sermon, uh, the congregation becomes the judge, the jury, and the executioners all in one, one deal, okay? And one sermon. And uh, usually it's on a long weekend where you go and you speak to staff and then you get interviewed by the church and you have this long Q&A thing and you answer these questions and, you know, sometimes church people have some interesting questions that are, you know, way out in left field. I know that didn't happen Thursday, right? I said, that didn't hurt on Thursday, right? Come on. Nobody here did that, right? Or at least put him on a spot. Uh, I remember one time I had a guy, he said, what version of the Bible do you preach out of? And I said, well, why does that matter? He said, well, I believe in the King James. And he was animate that only the King James. And I said, well, I study from the original Greek. Is that good enough for you? You know, I mean, there are times, I think, that... um, as we do Q&As, as we look at the physical person, as we listen to them speak, as we evaluate their education, as we wonder about a profile, as we look at, 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 the, you know, at our community and will he fit and will he not and all these things. Because I do pastor search committee training. I've done several of these. And uh, it, it's hard for churches to, to listen to someone preach before they actually interview them. Because it's possible for a search committee to like how he preaches and then really meet the guy and they don't always mesh. But they've fallen in love with how he preaches. They call him anyway. You don't need a good pulpiteer for God to use you to build a great church. Let me say that again. You don't need a great pulpiteer for God to use him and to use your church to build a great church with an incredible influence. I know a lot of guys who will never be on platforms and large conferences or whatever, and yet God has used them to build great churches that have great impact for kingdom purposes and to glorify God in incredible ways. And I remember when I was 24, was I 24, babe, 24, 25, I got called to my first church as pastor. I had been a student guy for Seemed like forever back then they called them student directors. Anybody old enough to remember those days? You were a student director. Then I became a student minister. Then I was a student. Never became a student pastor. Now everybody has the title pastor. But And making that transition. I remember about a year and a half after being pastor at First Baptist Church Haslett, I was shaking hands with people that were going out the, aisle, out the door at home, and one elderly woman came up and said, Well, you finally made it. You're no longer a student minister, you've now become a pastor. I don't know what that meant, but I think that was a compliment. I had made a transition from a student minister to a pastor, I guess, in her eyes. Um, We need to be really careful that we don't evaluate who God wants to choose based upon superficial assessment. 
Because if we did that, or if we do that, I think we have to humbly and honestly look in the mirror and recognize that God would have never chosen us if he had done that. God's not interested in a superficial assessment. He's interested more, I believe, in a supernatural insight into a person's heart. And God sees spiritual capacity where only God can. And because God is like that, he chooses the one who has spiritual capacity because he has supernatural insight and places that person where he wants them to be. Fifthly, God alone selects who he's prepared. Notice in verse 8, Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. Stop there for a minute. Do you see anywhere? Now, earlier in verse 6, Samuel had a thought. Surely this is him. There is no thought recorded here. Samuel's learned his lesson. I'm not going to predetermine in advance before I hear from the Lord who God is calling. Notice in verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. Made him, that indicates an authority. It may, indicates to me that he may have pushed him out front. I mean, I don't know about you, but brothers sometimes can be competitive. I have a brother. He was never as good as me in anything. I'm glad he's not here today. And uh, he thought, you know, if my older brother didn't make it, dad, I, I'm not going to. Or maybe he would say, hey, bro, he didn't make it, I'm it. I, I don't know what his reaction was, but he made him pass before Samuel. And Samuel said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 9, Jesse made Shema pass by. He made him pass by. Two brothers rejected Somewhat authority here, and Samuel said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. That's three down, four to go. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. He considers all seven of Jesse's sons. And they all passed by one by one, and the Lord said, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. It's safe to say that your elders probably looked at more than one resume. Is that safe to say, Tom? There was some sort of assessment there where God said, not him, not him, not him, not him, till you got to the one. Is that fair? There's a process of elimination here. But all of these men were being considered, and one by one the Lord said, not him, not him, not him. So the one that you're going to see next Sunday is the one that they have assessed these other men and they feel led that this is the one that God is choosing for our church. Remember, I told you earlier on, remember when God called Samuel to go to Jerusalem and he said one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king? Can you imagine for just a minute Samuel standing there and he's looking at these seven guys and all seven guys pass by and he knows what God has said, that one of Jesse's sons is going to be the king. And all seven, one by one, are rejected by the Lord. He's probably wondering, what have I missed? Right? He knows clearly what God has communicated, that one of Jesse's sons is going to be the king, is going to be the next leader, and yet he's analyzed and evaluated all of these sons and God has said, not this one, not this one, not this one. Maybe there's someone that he's missed. And he does. Verse 11, and Samuel said, he continues, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, 
But behold, he is keeping the sheep. Think about that for a minute. Not even David's father thought he was worthy enough to be in the lineup. Does that strike you as kind of sad? Hey, bub. Hey, David. Same is going to come. He's going to anoint one of the kings. We're going to put the seven brothers up here. You, buddy, you're not it. Go out tend to the sheep while we do business here. You're not good enough. He was the youngest, and he was a shepherd. The Lord, not going to use a shepherd to be a leader of a nation. And he said, there remains the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. But Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. You think Samuel knew something? I think Samuel knew in advance the seven God's turned down. This is the one that God's going to choose. So bring him on. Bring him on. Verse 12. And he set, sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. I know some of you are thinking, I thought you said looks don't matter. Well, they don't hurt none. All right? To be good looking doesn't disqualify you. Turn to the person next to you and say, good, because that means I'm in. Okay? You think you're good looking, you're in. All right? Uh, we'll, uh, we'll allow you in your perception and your deception, but that's okay. He was handsome. And the Lord said, notice what he said to Samuel, arise, anoint him. For this is he. Samuel heard from the Lord. Arise, anoint him. For this is he. That's the confirmation. God is the one who selected the one that he was going to choose to lead his people. And God and God alone is the one who selects his leaders. We simply affirm what God has communicated to us who God has chosen. Number six. God and God alone strengthens the one he chooses, or the one he's chosen. Notice verse 13. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of, the, of his brothers. Seven brothers were rejected. Now in the presence of his seven brothers and his father, who also didn't believe he was capable enough, didn't have the capacity to be the leader of a nation is seeing now and watching this process take place as the prophet Samuel takes the horn that he brought with the oil, pours it on his head, and sets David aside for God's glory and for his purpose. But notice interesting verse 18. The last, uh, verse 13, the last part of the verse. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Why would that happen? Why would that need to happen? Because humanly, independently and apart from God, David could have never been the leader that he was without the Spirit of the Lord strengthening him, guiding him, leading him every step of the way. We all know the history and the story of David. Was he a perfect man? Absolutely not. Did he make some blunders and mistakes? He made a few. But he always had the person of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, and the power of the Spirit engaging him and empowering him to be the leader that God had called him to be. And so must every leader that God appoints 
recognize their limitations and know that with God and his spirit who empowers the leader to be equipped to be the leader that God has called them to be that the spirit of God is necessary for that to take place whoever God leads you to call as your pastor he's not strong enough he's not smart enough he's not educated enough he's not experienced enough There are not enough coaches and there are not enough elders to help him lead well, except for the Spirit of the Lord. God's Spirit, His presence in God's man makes all the difference with the little that we bring to the table and the little that's a part of the equation. God does use education, he does use experience, he does use age and all those things. But if God's spirit is on whoever you call, no matter how old he is or how old he's not, what's going to make the difference is the spirit of the Lord on him as he leads those that God has entrusted to his care. And lastly, God and God alone specifies when his work is complete. Notice the last sentence in verse 13. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Job's done. There's no questioning. There's no worrying. There's no concern on Samuel's part. God has led him to Jerusalem. He has examined the the eight sons. God has directed him to David. He has done what God has called him to do because God is the one who appointed and Samuel anointed him, set him aside for what God has called him to do. And he picks up and he goes home. The task is done. Once God calls you a pastor, the job's done. No more second guesses, no more concerns, no more doubts, no more worries, no more what ifs. God now is the one who's called and is God who will equip and is God who will lead. I remember back when I was a missionary kid back in Brazil. we played soccer in Brazil on the streets. Uh, there were, were no places to play. We were in the city, and so we played in the street. And our house happened to be on sort of a, not a dead-end street, but a very, a very not, not traveled very well street. And so that was the street in front of our house. We played soccer in both ends of the, of the sidewalk. There were lo- walls, and so we'd make goals on those ends, and we'd play in soccer in the streets. And we, we did that for hours when I was a kid growing up. And I remember one day my father came outside and he wanted to play soccer with us. Now, for a young kid who's probably about 11, your 40-year-old dad's pretty old and he's an American and he's never played soccer, so why does he want to come play soccer with us? And so you begin to think those thoughts. And I happened to be one of the captains that was going to choose the team and the other guy was the captain and he was a Brazilian kid. And so... There were about, I don't know, 12 or 13 guys out there. And so, as you can imagine, you're a captain. You're choosing your teammates. What do you do? Choose the best soccer player to be on your team. And you already know these guys because you played with them a long time. And so you're assessing them. And I'm choosing, and he's choosing, and I'm choosing. And we're sort of going back for the best to the least best soccer player. There are about four kids standing there and my dad... I remember this to this day. And my dad said in English so that my Brazilian friends could not hear, he said, son, if you don't choose me, 
you will get no allowance this week. My dad didn't want to be the last one standing and the last one to be selected. And he couldn't imagine why his son wouldn't select him to be on his team. My dad stunk at soccer. I didn't want him on my team. You know, I've thought about that many times, and I thought about this in this study. I don't know who you are and where you are today or where you have been or where you're going, but I know God does. And as an individual, as a child of the Lord Jesus Christ, a believer in Jesus, no matter how you assess yourself or how others may assess you, God sees you in a different light. And God can always use those who he chooses for his glory to accomplish great things. So look at yourself through the eyes of God. Not through your eyes, maybe not even through the eyes of your family. Or maybe the eyes of your peers. But see yourself as God sees you with incredible capacity and potential to bring glory and honor to him as you step into the obedient life that he's called you to live because there are great things in store for you. As a congregation, as a church, next week, you'll vote on a pastor. How will you assess the man that your elders believe is the next pastor for your church? Will it be physical or will it be spiritual? Will you listen to the Lord and follow his lead? I'm not here to convince you one way or the other. What I'm going to invite you to do this week is for you to spend a lot of time in the word and on your knees before the Lord and ask God to speak to you clearly so that when you come together as a congregation, you've heard from the Lord and you vote how God has led you to vote. I don't know if I should say this or not, but I'm going to say it anyway. My last church, Paramount Baptist Church, I was interim there, and they were calling a new pastor. And um, I had heard from some of the members that there are four or five, three or four or five people in that church that vote no at every vote. They just vote no. And the reason they vote no is they want to make sure that every vote is counted so that when they vote no, they'll know that their vote was counted no. That is the most unspiritual way to vote for God's will to be done in his church than anything I have ever heard in my life. So I encourage you to vote your conviction. Don't vote no just to make sure your vote is counted. But vote according to how God is leading you to vote and how God is leading his church. Because the 10 years that you've existed and the 10 years that you've been a family, You've had some highs and you've had some lows. But I know that God's not finished with you yet. I know there's an incredible future for you. And I believe God has the man that he wants to lead you to that incredible future that God has for you along with your elders. God's not finished with you yet. There are greater things to come. And I believe when God leads you to the man that he's calling to be your next pastor, God is preparing you as he's been preparing him, like he prepared David, to come to be the leader that God has called him to be, filled with his spirit, to lead God's people 
in the Spirit to accomplish what only God can do through you. There are no limitations for what God can and will do through you. You have an incredible future ahead for you. So one of these days when you're in that 10,000 seat auditorium and you're packing it out and all that, whatever God has, invite me to some sort of service. I just want to sit there and just glorify God with you as to how God has blessed you and what God has led you to be. Pray with me, would you? God, thank you for the joy and the privilege and the opportunity we've had to be challenged by this message. And God, I've been on the other end of this many times to be the one that has been presented to a church and has brought before a congregation. A few people have prayed with me, and I believe that you were leading, and they believe that you were leading me to that church to be the pastor of the church, the shepherd. I remember the anxiety and the We just believed that you were doing what you were doing and we were stepping in obedience and faith and you worked it all out. Lord, you know the one that you have prepared. He's been on a journey for quite some time. He believes that God is calling him to this church. The elders believe that you are calling him to this church. Now it's time for the congregation to come together as a family and affirm what they believe is God's will for your church. May we always be reminded that it's your church and that we are your people, that you and you alone are sovereign. You're sitting and reigning and ruling on the throne and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So Lord, help us exercise that faith and that belief, trusting in you with the outcome. We do not know where it's going to lead. We don't know where the future holds. You do. And because we know who you are, we know we can step out in faith and trust you and you alone. So Lord, we pray, not our will be done, but your will be done in heaven as it is on earth in the call of the next pastor next week for this congregation, for this church family. God, speak clearly to individuals. May we hear from you. May we come ready to affirm what you have spoken to our hearts as we celebrate your activity for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name.